that we are engaged now in studying the 13 Ikarim, 13 principles of the Rambam. Of course, it came to the fore as a commentary on Pedic Helek. Rambam, our question is, does or does he not include these 13 in Mishneh Torah? We had covered all the 13 Ikarim. Want you to have an awareness of this. And remember that we've covered the notion that today everybody believes that this is the 13 essential principles, even though all the Dishonim argued with him and discussed ad... <coughs> Great length. All these Ishtarim discussed at great length. What are the 13 principles? We don't agree with you all 13. We get 13 from all of a sudden in the 12th century. Rambam says, here's 13. Take it or leave it. As an absolute, and we had read the last paragraph of the Rambam's commentary, which is so intense, ferocious even. You have to hate the person who has any kind of a doubt about any one of these 13. And you can't take that, I am interpreting, at face value. Why not? Because... The Rambam has to be aware that when you study these 13, you're going to have doubts. You're going to have questions. Because intrinsic to these 13 are the most difficult philosophical concepts. Whether it's a notion of God. We don't understand what God's all about. So why don't you say, I believe in God. What are you talking about? What does that mean? So you have to explain to me what all that actually means. And I have to have questions about that explanation. Can the Rambam explain what God is? No. So what are we talking about then? I have to believe in X. What's X? So I'm going to have a question as to what all that's about. So the Rambam over here, who castigates, condemns the person who has a doubt, we have a question with the Rambam. That's number one. So what does that paragraph mean? Something that we've discussed. As well to understand even the eternity of God, or all these issues that we're talking about over here, raises questions and doubts. So that's one issue. So the question that we really deal with now, we began last week, is to understand and try to establish whether or not the Rambam incorporates these 13 principles in his more standard work mm-hmm. meant for the public, Mishneh Torah. Last week we went over the historical sequence of events. He wrote his commentary on the Mishnah as a young man, 25 to 30 years old, on the run from the Amul Hadis. Does that affect his commentary or not? We're not going to say necessarily that it does. But he wrote Mishneh Torah 30, 40 years later from 1168 to 1178. Mm-hmm. Gets to Egypt under Salah al-Din and he now has the time and luxury to write about Mishneh Torah as opposed to running on the run. Does that affect it or not? We're not going to deal with that particular question how he wrote his commentary on the Mishnah. But we do know as a fact, he does not list 13 Ikarim the way he does at the end of his Hatama the Hayek. Here's 13 essential principles. One, two, three, and he goes through all of them. As opposed to that, here in Mishneh Torah we're going to find, okay good, we're going to find that the Rambam does in fact, perhaps, possibly incorporate these 13 into the first Sefer HaMadah, the Book of Knowledge, but not as 13, catech- as a catechism, as a statement of our religious principles. The Christians had a catechism, the Muslims had a catechism, to the Jews. Dram puts catechism over here, his commentary, not over here in Mishneh Torah. Your question is, why? What was the status of this? Is he writing this only as a commentary on the Mishnah Sanhedrin? Perhaps. Some people want to explain it that way. Is he writing it polemically against the Christians and the Muslims for the Jew in the marketplace to have a statement? Very simple, 13 principles that I believe in. You're going to be challenged. You're going to university, actually. Wherever you're going to go, you're challenged. What do you believe in as a Jew? 
in Mordechai is uh, in that situation now where he's University of Maryland and he's on this floor just, you know, for certain people he's on the baseball team floor he's on the baseball team he doesn't play but he's on that floor so people that want to be serious because basically these guys are very serious they have to train and, and do all kinds of stuff so they ask him these weird questions about what are you wearing on your head what's that little thing on your door called the mezuzah or a kippah so he's asked these questions so Mordechai should have a good answer after 20 years of education to be able to figure out to how to explain all of his beliefs, including these 13 beliefs. Interestingly, that if all this intentional education of yeshiva, school, high school, two years in Israel, and all that, could he explain all these 13? Does he know these 13? And yet we had read in past weeks <clears throat> how Rabbi Seyo say, these are the principles. Essential corpus, you have to believe them. And yet we see that many will challenge, in the period of the Shonim, will challenge these 13. So let's just look at these 13, and we want to see whether or not he puts it in Mishneh Torah. We're going to see that most of them are yes, one or two are not, and yeah, we're also going to be surprised because in Mishneh Torah, you must believe Behirah Hofshit, not one of the 13. Freedom of the will, not one of them. You have to believe in creation, ex nihilo, from nothing. Universe, from nothing. Big Bang. He says that in his Morena Vuchim statement, A, we're going to get to that down the road, here as well, but... On the other hand, it's not one of the 13. So, Rambam, what are you talking about? What are we doing over here? What are these things? And that's why he was challenged by other Rishonim. Rabbi Sif Albo, Rabbi Kreskas all said, what do you mean by these 13? What's a principle? And <clears throat> Albo, for example, will say, we by Ikar means, we mean that without which you cannot have Judaism. So, he only has three principles. God, Bore Olam, number one, Two, Torah and Hashemayim, divine basis to law. Three, Sechad Va'onish, Ruah and punishment. Those are his three principles without which you cannot have Judaism. If there's no Sechad Va'onish, are you going to do Judaism? If there's no, which implies Hashkachai, if, if there's no Torah and then what's the basis for all this? And God. So he has three. Kreskas has 21 principles of a, some major, some minor. So there's a whole history to this issue of dogma or Ikarim that follows the Rambam. Ram was the first to raise it as an, as an issue. A thousand years after the Talmud, one might say. Ram, Ram is 1135 to 1204. He raises an issue as a commentary. Almost as a kind of passing by commentary. It doesn't highlight any place. Remember, the commentary the Mishnah is massive. And Ram's commentary on the Mishnah is massive. If you want to highlight this as the essential principles, why put it a commentary that who, 1% of Jews are studying every five years? Then and now, no different. So why put it here? Highlight it in Mishneh Torah. So let's now look at these 13. One, we look at these existence of God. <clears throat> and again, I have to also reiterate the notion that the listing of these 13 have different cognitive statuses depending upon what the Rambam introduced it with if is Amin means emunah pure belief amanat in Arabic this was written originally as an Arabic commentary so we want to know the Arabic on the other hand it could be Artiqad in Arabic which means a logically based belief there's smoke there's fire as well as the third cognitive status is Ilim, which means absolute true knowledge. All bachelors are unmarried. Every triangle has 180 degrees. God exists. The Rambam sees Ilim as the opening statement of the first Yisod. 
you not must believe, you must know that God exists. And we had shown last week that whereas in his Shnei Torah, he says, use the word Ha'amin, just have to believe that God exists, because this is a popular work for everybody. In the Sefer Mitzvot, we had seen last week, it says Lida, to know. Now, interesting is that Hebrew does not have the same three cognitive terms. Arabic was more precise and more logical enough to give context. And the Rambam understood this. The Rambam wrote in Arabic, and he writes the right thing. So here in Sefer Mitzvot, you have Sefer Mitzvot over here? So here he says to us, Leda. So there you have Sotra, but not in other Mishnah Torah. Yeah, this is the correct. Uh, right, so that's an amazing point that, that Mickey is pointing out right now that you have different opening statements. Of Chaim Heller, in his, in his um, commentary of Sivan Mitzvot, points this out that even Mishnah Torah has different variations. So in this Mishnah Torah, <coughs> this one over here, it's Leda to know. But other Mishneh Torah says Le'amim. Here's Le'amim. In Ikarim that we have over here, it's Le'amim, it's Yut Aboreh. So that's Le'amim. To believe. Okay, I believe in God. Here it's Le'da. To know. And in Sefer Mitzvot, we had a different statement. So in each one of these, you get, what is the cognitive status? Do I have to know that God exists? Or just believe that God exists? Or is belief in God, Aitekad? Is it just reasoned conclusions that I accept on faith? Where the smoke is fire. There could be smoke and no fire. Might be a cold winter day and you see smoke coming out of somebody's mouth. There's no fire. But you see smoke and you don't know better. Is the smoke is fire. So each one of these has different cognitive status. So last week, I want to get, move quickly. Last week in Chose Torah, remember that the book of... Um, also Frankel, Leda. In Frankel, yeah. Frankel is great. Frankel and Kafach, Leda. This is Kafach? Yeah. It's Kafach and Frankel. It's later the Frankel and Kafach. So they put them both together. Yeah, well, that, yeah. Both. This is just the Frankel by itself. Wait, he's. This is Frankel. No, no, I said, but he's earlier than Kappa? Yes. No, no, he's earlier than, than the one volume. The one volume is. Because Frankel is the more critical, this is the critical edition, I guess you would say. There's nothing that came after Frankel that was any better than Frankel, I don't well, think. This is the one volume. The one volume is the critical edition of both. You can't be critical edition of both. We go, it has to go, we go to the introduction. I'm saying, but it can't because otherwise you need, you need critical apparatus. You need to have footnotes to tell you what you chose. If you have two and they had questions, you had to, he chose one or the other. So he's got to tell me which one and what he chose and why he chose that particular one. Yeah, on some of them. Okay. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so um, in the opening section of the Book of Knowledge, we had seen, and this is page number one on your sheets, right? You had seen, number one, the first two of the 13 principles. Our third says you believe that God exists, number one. And look at and you look at, at page one. Number Gimel, which is Liyahador, you have the obligation of proclaiming the oneness, aloneness, and uniqueness of God. So now look at my thirteen. So that's your thirteen, my summary. In my thirteen over here, number one, I have existence of God. Then I have number two is Yehud Hashem. What does the oneness of God mean? God is alone. There are no there's no other God. Number one. Number two. God's aloneness is a type of aloneness that nothing compares to it whatsoever and therefore we don't really understand what the aloneness is really all about because it's mm-hmm. a unique kind of aloneness it's not like if I'm alone in a room I'm alone in a room so God's alone in the universe same aloneness? no it's a different type of aloneness that God has as opposed to anybody else so we don't understand this because uniqueness is unique is what we say God, Borei Olam is alone there's no other gods God is God Hashem is Hashem no other God number one but also his aloneness is unique his being whatever that means is unique as well and, the un- and his uniqueness is unique to itself 
He's uh, you have a math. You high school people have a mathematical terms for this. You study this in contemporary math that they didn't have 40 years ago. They created new math that we don't even know about. I don't know what it is. And they have some like category subsets and sets and and uh, stuff like that. Don't they have? Am I off base? I'm sure you're on page. It's what? I'm learning that at the moment, but I'm sure you're on page. Nah, I'm not sure, but they have like they have like a, a set. They have some things that follow, don't follow, whatever it may be. If you have, you could have uh, proofs, laws, yeah. Yeah, but you also have you might have a category that is one of its kind. Mm-hmm. Something that's one of its kind. Or in any case, so here you have whatever is one of its kind, and the Rambam will say that God is of simple sub, simple substance. Not as we spoke about last week, not a composite, simple substance. Whatever that means. I don't feel comfortable using the word substance regarding Bore Olam either. What's a substance? Uh, something, usually think of something physical. No, God's not physical. Okay, God's not physical. So what is God? It's not physical, but it's a substance. Okay, good. So on this first page, you see it of the, all these ten mitzvot that are part and parcel of Hachos Torah, which is the first section of Sefer HaMadah. We have to get all this clear. There are five sections of Sefer HaMadah. We covered it last week. There's only two. Okay, those two we did. Good. Now let's go and see we want. Look at three. Three I have, Shililat Hagashmiyut. Denial of God's physicality. That was number three over here. Right? On the 13, from the commentary of Sanhedrin, we have Shililat Hagashmiyut, Imenu. You have to assert. Shina'amin is what he says over here. But that's not going to be correct to the Arabic. Because Denial of physicality is a logical principle based on absolute logic and reason. God cannot be physical. Period exclamation point. God cannot be physical. God cannot become physical. And obviously in Christianity, God became physical. So is this really a polemic? We all know what polemic means, right? You know what polemic means? Polemic is a strident... Usually with Lichman can be in political issues as well. Non, a non-necessarily reasoned argument. A polemic is a debate that's necessarily based on calm, cold, cool, analytic, rational thinking. Gotcha. It's strident. It's the Tea Party and... Uh, who's the other side of the Tea Party? Who? The Wall Street and Tea Party. <laughs> right. <laughs> One of those. So they have polemics. And you're not reason the logical analytical. There's an interesting book review of a few books about the, the history of the Tea Party and all things like that. So it won't back up an argument if it's polemic. We just yell in the Israeli Parliament. If they yell at each other, for example, like Kinnear said they yell at each other. What are you saying? What are you doing? What are you saying? Oh, I didn't say that. You just said that. It's, 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 so if you ever heard it's it, why thirteen? Sorry, it's like why thirteen? It's like. Hello, Yeshiva, class, Oh, is there a white? Okay. Everyone's just yelling. <laughs> yeah, we get that sometimes, correct. So just, and you know, and it's, you're not, you're tempted to convince, not through logical and rational means, but simply, almost through, it's all ad hominem. Ad hominem is against the person, not against the person's arguments. So that's a polemic. It's a debate based on stridency, based on ad hominem attacking the person, not attacking the argument. So that's a polemic. So is around polemicizing over here against Islam and against Christianity. And we see a heavy-duty statement about Moshe Rabbeinu down the road against Islam, which elevated Muhammad to an incredible status. 
And Ram talks about Moshe Rabbeinu the same way because Moshe is the same as Muhammad. So this is polemical. Christianity would be denied by the third principle. But that's again, it's not Na'amin, really, it should be Shinada. I don't have the original Arabic over here of the, um, uh, of the commentary, uh, but that would help us. And the Pinochet Mishnah in your office? I, can't, I don't think I'm missing this one. This Pinochet Mishnah is missing it. Whatever, so I have to try to find it. <clears throat> I, I, it's a three-volume work. That doesn't have the, the original Arabic is six volumes. This one, I only have the three Hebrew one, and oh, it may have a footnote to that effect. It would have a footnote to this effect as to what this really means, but I remember when I last checked, I couldn't find it because we're moving still, so we're trying. So we'll see. In any case, so the Ramah over here would say that this is, you have to know that God cannot be physical. God cannot become physical. Christianity, God in his great love for the human being sacrificed himself as a korban as a korban on the cross and that's Christianity so we Jews of course polemicized against Christianity because how could God be physical it's a contradiction in terms it's silly it's foolish so for the thousand year polemical debate between Christianity and Judaism a thousand years we're debating these issues we are speaking a different language they're saying God can do the logically impossible God can create a square circle. God can create a stone that he cannot lift. I thought you could say God's omnipotent. He lift that stone. No, God can create a stone that he cannot lift. That's logically possible. Then he can lift it. <laughs> but then he can, what do you mean then he can lift it? He can't lift it. Then he's not all powerful. But he is, they say. He's maybe omnipotent. Now, maybe in our terms he could be all powerful. Terms, they didn't think in terms of, they didn't think in terms of language, philosophy of language. Good to see you. Welcome. It's a late entrance thing. I want you to. Sorry, love to have you. Sorry. I only think God can do anything. So can he create? Yes. Can he lift? Yes. (laughs) But but no. The premise is can he create something he can't lift? That's 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 the question. When you say that, he can't. When you say then, can he lift? Yes, he can. They didn't see. They they didn't see time in, in that. They didn't see language in that way. For them, language was absolute. After Kant, language becomes relative, and we know that language is very limited. Post Kant. Kant says, critique of pure reason. He proves this and he proves this. He proves God's. This he proves atheism. With the same premises, you can miss both ways. He proves eternity, he proves creation. He proves free will, he proves non free will. Critique of pure reason. So Kant says, you don't get language. Language does not work, essentially. And the more sophisticated people who use language nowadays, it all begins and ends with Kant because he's right. You can't, language does not work. It's true. And today in the philosophical world, you have something called logical positivists who only base all philosophy on a proper understanding of language. And it goes on and on and on. But, so here you have a denial of God's physicality and corporeality. Good. The fourth one, did we have that in this first section? The answer is no, we have no more. So let's look at the next page. You have, this is your set. These are the 13 principles. Your 13 principles. This is page number one. And now we have a chod de art. The second, the second area of the book of knowledge are moral principles. The first is intellectual. All the appropriate intellectual principles that a Jew has to know. And there are ten mitzvot wrapped up in these op- this opening chapter of Yisdei Torah. Right. You, have, you have over here, you have a total of ten chapters. You have ten mitzvot. Okay, that's good. Book of knowledge. Tradition principles of Torah. You have ten chapters. You have ten mitzvot. Two of which are our ikarim from the Kedusha Mishnayot. Good. 
Now the second, and we did this last week, we went through very roughly the five sections of the book of knowledge. I want you to be aware of this. You have, your ought means moral character. character traits. Good, moral. And the Rambam has 11 mitzvot are involved over here. 11 mitzvot in these seven chapters. 11 mitzvot about how to be a good person. Don't hate your friend. Rebuke your friend. Don't embarrass somebody. Do not afflict a poor person. A orphan, a widow, a stranger. Right? Do not take revenge. Look how interesting the Rambam is. Eleven misvot are all part of your character. Lord and Tor, do not take revenge. And don't do what the person wants, saying, I'm not like you. I will give you my rake, though you didn't give me your rake. So I'm not taking revenge. Holding a grudge. Right. Don't hold a grudge. Correct. That would be number 11. Don't speak evil of a people. All is love the stranger or the convert. Remember, at a certain point, biblically, the word ger means stranger. You're a stranger out of Egypt, love the ger. But at a certain point in rabbinic literature, the word ger converts to mean convert. So ger in Rambam and Talmudic means a convert. You don't really have a concept of conversion biblically. There are no hilchot gerut in the Torah itself. Rather, we're told you cannot marry their children, we can't marry your children, etc. But no kind of gerut, where we have halachot of changing from one religion to another religion. Mm-hmm. Right? So that we know. So, the, of course, the Gemara Masechi Yivamot, as codified by the Rambam in Echot Isurei Bi'ah, chapter 12, 13, he talks about Echot Gerut based on purely Talmudic issues, which is fine. Okay, well, that's good. So when he says Echot Gerut, love the Ger. Is he referring to the stranger or is he referring to the convert? Is an interesting question. <clears throat> Especially in light of Chom Belachim, down at the end, uh, the end of the Rambam, where he talks how we have to relate to the non-Jew. So that's one issue. And especially in light of Devarim Perekyud in Devarim chapter 10, Pasuk 17, 18, 19, where Hashem says, I love the Ger. I love the stranger. Right? That's a very important Pasuk, Devarim chapter 10, Pasuk 17, 18, 19. That concept, what's God all about? Awesome, powerful, omnipotent, all of that. That's 17, 18. And what does Hashem do? With all this power, He takes care of the orphan, the widow, and the loves the girl. That means stranger. I love the stranger. In the ancient Eris, we have people that are all xenophobic. You know the word, right? Yeah. Fear of strangers. So everybody's xenophobic in the ancient, in the biblical world or in the classical world. One of my famous and cute... We're xenophobic now, kind of. I'm sorry? Syrian community. Like oh, we are very xenophobic in the community. Yeah, I can't... Even Ashkenazim keep us away from them, too. Very scary, those Ashkenazim. So, yes, we are. And even... Um, well, prejudice come from... Yes, exactly. Correct, correct, correct. And what's interesting about... Um, the ancient cities is that they were built and the, we found archaeologically we found they had courts of law outside the city gates why? because caravans would come and they would trade their wares not in the city but rather they would say outside the city and why would you have courts of law there? because that's what you needed to adjudicate to what you think your watch is worth what I think your watch is worth so the courts of law would be where the marketplace is. The courts of law would be where the marketplace is. Mm-hmm. Marketplace all had to be outside because you didn't allow people into your city. 
when the brothers of Joseph come into the city, what are they called? Miragilim. You're supposed to stay outside the city. You can't come to the city and just buy anything you want. So it's supposed to be outside. So you're coming into the city, you must be Miragilim. Twelve people going different directions, you must be Miragilim. So that's part of the Yosef narrative. So xenophobia meant you kept the courts outside, because that's what Judah case, and the caravans are outside, they don't come in, and the marketplace is outside of the city gates. We keep our gates locked. Xenophobia, fear. Here Hashem says, no, that prejudice of, ha- of hating and fearing strangers, inappropriate, I love the stranger. To give him lehem simla, food and clothing, so it doesn't cry and cold at night. So that's part of the art. Good. And even something like Lidamot Bidrachav. If you were to ask me, is there one mitzvah that is essential and core, it would be this mitzvah. To be like God. Imitatio in the Latin. Be like God. What is God? And this is the Gemara Sota tells you this as well. A few dollars. Talks about this as well. That what does Hashem do? He clothes the naked. He feeds the hungry. That's the essence of God's moral personality. That's what we're all about as a religion. So the Mubit Rechav says that everything. If Mesh, God is my model of all values, correct? Borei Olam is the model of all values. So if I do everything that God does, I've hit the highest mark that one can hit. I am doing everything to the degree that is humanly possible that God does. The Mubit Rechav is a mitzvah. Do what God is all about. So the Rambam sees that as the first mitzvah in the Ot. But it's not one of the 13. I find that very perplexing. And how does Ram, I mean, answer the question? How, how would Ram answer that question? We would all agree that Lidamot Bidrachav, as the first of the moral principles, to be like God is absolutely critical to the Jewish life. That's really the model. Do what God does. Can I do better than God? No. What God is is the absolute model. God is the absolute model. To the degree you could imitate what God does, you've done it right. So that should be one of the Ikarim. So you could raise the question, what does the Rambam mean by Ikarim? The most important mitzvot? No. doesn't mean that. What does it mean? Well, we have to ultimately try to conceptually understand what does the word Ikar mean for the Rambam? Again, that is a key issue that the other Rishonim after the Rambam argued about. What does Rambam mean by the word Ikar? Essential core principles. So, number one, God exists. Number two, God is alone. Does he, call them, does he use the word Ikar? Yeah, Ikar and Yesod. We have to get the original Arabic to see what he understood by that term. And how many of them does he use the term Ikar? We have to look it up. The Ikar looks like it's more... Uh, uh, Essential, core. No, it's uh, more belief. Well, Thirteen so beliefs? It's, well, it's, it's, no, 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 it's, it's more of an action. Being, okay, uh, oh, that's a good more point, more. excellent point. We have to figure out, again, what these, okay, these are creeds, statements of creed. No actions involved over here. I'll, I'll accept that, I think, so far. So these are 13, Mosaic prophecy, prophecy, all of these, these are creed, and that's deed. So, it's not so, so it's inappropriate to call these core principles of Judaism because the Midrachat is a core principle of Judaism but it's not over here because Rama wants creed Rama wants what do you have to believe or know intellectually and um, you'll see that they're all in the book of knowledge they're all in the book of knowledge have one or two questionable ones but okay I'll buy that and with Midrachat so all these are 10, 11, 11 halachot 11 mitzvot but not one of them is part of these. Okay, good. 
Now, let's go to the next page. So we've only done really the first two so far. Right? The next page should be the third section of the Book of Knowledge, which is Talmud Torah. Right? Third. So the Ramah tells you, here's your foundation principles, you see that Torah as section number one. Here's your section number two called Dear Art, which is moral, moral failure traits. Section number three of, of this Book of Knowledge, Tavramadah, involves how to achieve the first two. How do you achieve knowledge of God's existence and all that's involved, foundation principles of Torah, and how to achieve proper moral characteristics, study Torah. Here you have a total of two mitzvot, the Ramah tells you, in a total of seven chapters. What are two mitzvot? That should be your third. Do you have it? I didn't give it to you? No. Okay, hold on to that for a second. Here you have two mitzvot. I want to save paper. A, you have mitzvot aser to study Torah. B, to respect those who teach Torah. Two mitzvot. Let me do these 13. Pass. Good? Good? Good. That's the seven. That's the seven chapters of the Chotamu Torah. Now, we have the next page. Massive. Okay, now we're, we hit it rich. We hit it big. We hit the gold mine. Here you have 51 mitzvot, which denies all the previous sections. Abu Dazara. The cardinal sin. Grievous. Horrifying. To be fully condemned by the Rambam, of course. By the Talmud, of course. And by the Bible as well. By Torah as well. Tanakh condemns all this kind of paganism. What does it really mean conceptually? When you take that which is abstract, God, and you make it to concrete. Idolatry. Any form of idolatry. Take, again, an image of a human being and you worship it. That's called idolatry. And he, as Gnar Sandin tells us, he who has... Rooted out of the Torah, just get rid of the Torah, because that absolutization of the concrete into an absolute principle, saying Hitler is my leader, whatever he says I do, that absolutization of the human, mm-hmm. or identifying God with a physical object, such as the sun or the moon, which you have in the book of Devarim by Parashat Hanan, you have all that. Any of that undermines all the Torahs about. So the Rambam in the fourth section of this book of knowledge is telling you you must know what all this is about interestingly we don't really study this have people study people have not studied it's not our issue we don't believe in idols anybody have an idol in the house that they bow down to so is that really what idols are all about oh they're uh, iPhones or they're uh, Blackberries be a fan of their Oh my gosh. Yes. More than one. But they really prank from the Sidur that's on their iPad and the things, right? could be like a frame of mind. Yeah, that's the key issue. Right. It's an interesting issue. We don't have the temptations anymore to, like, sure do. to like bow down the trees and stuff. I mean, trees? I don't want to. I mean, I guess I can speak for myself. You live in Long Branch, that's why. What's the deal? We have nice trees, that's all. Okay, uh, let's, let's figure this out. What really is Avodazara is the key question. Money. For some, for some, but that I think is is too simple of an answer because nobody really sees it as a you know as an avodazara. Even Warren Buffett is not that foolish. I mean, he loves money, wants money, but it's it's a mindset. 
changes from when he was making it. To That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if you're saying you think point. of God in a physical sense, then boom, right? So that's now, yes, and everybody does. So say, God help me, and you think of God as there, mm-hmm. in a place. Taking up space. Taking up space, that would be a form of idolatry. That's more sophisticated. <laughs> right. So the Torah said, well, Torah tells you God's physical and all those issues. So it's almost as if the underlying current of Torah, the underlying current of Torah, is that I'm going to so physically describe God that you have to reject my physical description. I'll tell you that in Devarim, I'll tell you, you didn't hear the voice, you didn't, this, you didn't, this, you didn't see it, you didn't see a physical image of God. So God's not physical. But I'll describe God physically. It's a fascinating pedagogic almost device that I will describe something so much so and in one line I'll deny all that I describe physically so why should I do that again God is physically described in every page of Torah itself but in one context or two contexts I'll tell you Lord I quote him you didn't see any physical image of God God's not physical so what should be more prominent to you what are you going to take away from that so Torah would say you may in fact you may say to me that the really smart PhD philosopher he gets that imageless God but the average person needs an imaged God. So is that true? Are we wired to the extent where we need an imaged God? And even Christianity, <clears throat> which is a thousand years after Torah is given, good, who had an imaged God. And now we are 2,000 years into the discussion, they still have an imaged God. So what are they missing? What are we missing? How compelling is the Christian message? Now we think about it from our context, we can't see it compelling at all. We said it's ridiculous, absurd. But what motivates 1.8 billion Christians? What motivates them? Why are they so committed? And why are all their PhDs so committed? And why are some of the most brilliant minds of history who were Christians still were committed? Why? Because it makes sense to them that God has an infinite love for mankind will become human, become physical and sacrifice himself as Kurban Pesach on the cross to save us from eternal damnation we are born with sin because of Adam and Eve the original sin, we did original sin so we need something to really help so anybody that believes in Yeshu saved from eternal damnation so the Christians fervently, intensely would try to convert Jews to save them out of their great love as Jesus did, great love for humanity. Save them, save us. Otherwise, you're eternally damned. I mean, we don't have the concept of eternal damnation. We don't have that concept. You can be a good Christian. If you keep the seven Ohad commandments, you're home free into Olam Haba. Christians don't believe that. So, what makes Christianity so compelling that 1.8 billion people still buy it? They still see it as the right pathway to heaven. I think that's delegitimizing falsely who they are and what they believe. They don't do it because it's simply easier. It's not because it's easier. It's tangible. It's easier to to connect with something emotionally to something that's in front of you and tangible than something that... Okay, good. So there's two points. A is that it's tangible. B, that it's emotionally compelling. God loves you. Jesus loves you. That's all I keep saying all day long. Sorry? No matter what. And he forgives you and you go to Father Confessor and he forgives your sins. I did 12 adulteries last week. No problem. Hail Mary three times and 
And we have a tendency towards laughing at this because we do Yom Kippur to get forgiveness no matter what we did. They don't do Yom Kippur. Just go to the priest, confess, do mass, and you and you're forgiven. So I don't think it's so because it's simple. I think it's just theirs is harder. Harder to believe in Christianity. No, harder to confess to the priest. Huh. Yes, nowadays, yes. What did you do? You confessed to me. I was uh, in, in Florida during uh, break. Uh, yes. And on Shabbat, they had a in the sky. A sky what did it say? Jesus loves you. Oh, wow. My, my nine year old looked up and was like, <laughs> 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 Went to the right school. Right school, very good. He <laughs> goes, Don't look. Don't look. Well, I'm a nine year old. That's a third grade. You started indoctrinating third grade. Fourth grade. Fourth grade. There's something to be said for understanding what they're all about. The Ramah talks about what they're all about and sees it, sees it positively because it brings them closer to the Messianic moment because they understand the cost of Mashiach. So that's good. Pagans don't. Pagans, pagans have a cyclical view of history. There's no Messianic movement, movement or moment in paganism. So Christianity is great at its improvement on paganism. So that's good. But again, Torah again sees the same thing in that it does physicalize God himself. Because how, how could you sell God's imageless, abstract, can't touch, utterly, absolutely transcendent? We can't live with that. So on the other hand, we have 51 law ta'asas, all these law ta'asas here. You have 51 mitzvot, 2 positive, 41 negative law ta'asas. Which if you don't mention all of these... If you don't deny Avdah Zarat, and say you deny Zarat, then you have committed a terrible sin. So the Rambam, as a Torah, and Sanhedrin, more than Torah. Torah is almost tolerant of Avdah Zarat. Unless they immoral. Sexual perversions. Vaikra Yud Het. Okay, that we know. But does Torah allow a pagan to be a pagan Outside of Israel. Yes, the seven tribes, the seven pagan nations, can I need all those, all those nations, who want to leave when we come and conquer. You could leave, do what you want. The Gashi left, you could leave. No problem. Or become decent civilized human beings, seven of us have Noah. Or we engage in battle, and we're absolutely total about that, with the hope that that fear of engaging us in absolute total warfare will convince you to take option one or two. That's the way the Gemara Tanedrin talks about Yeshua's conquering of the land. It doesn't have a letter, it's not biblical, it's Talmudic. It sent a letter to all the three. You want to leave, you can leave. Gigashi left. The Givonim became seven or seven and they became part of the Jewish people. And they fulfilled the seventh of the cross, and the others engaged in absolute warfare. Okay, so do we allow a pagan to be a pagan outside the confines of Israel? The answer is yes. You want to leave to be pagan someplace else? Are we obligated to conquer the pagan five thousand miles away? No, we're not obligated to do that. At least biblically, you have cities that are within that you have to conquer and establish monotheism within the confines of Israel, of the state of Israel in that point. Good. So here we have in the third section, fourth section, of Madah, 51 mitzvot, 2 positive, 49 negative. So you read, 1, don't turn after idolatry. 2, don't go after that which is appealing to you idolatrously. Don't curse God. 
Do not serve God with the same ways that idolatry serves its gods. Well, let's go. Hold on a second. No, I'm sorry. One second. Don't serve idolatry the way they serve it. You can't even make a passage. You can't make it. You can't bow down to it. You can't serve it. Don't make a passage even somebody else. So here's an interesting question. Can I make a crucifix? Can I? I'm a businessman. I want to manufacture crucifix eye. No, you can't have any benefit from it. So can't take any benefit. So therefore, can a Syrian retail store sell crucifixes? The answer is: Is Christianity of Dazara or not? So if you want to make a distinction, as some do, that Catholicism, which has an image, is, and Protestantism is not, because Protestants does not have an image of Yeshua. There's no image of Yeshua and Protestantism. So that might be an interesting distinction. Mm-hmm. Right? You think? Your question is? Well, I don't know that Protestantism doesn't have an image. No, they don't. To the extent where there are Unitarians... They believe in Yeshua. But there's no image? Yeah, there's no image. Correct, no image. If you go to, they, to they a Methodist church, they don't have, or Episcopalian, uh, they don't have an image. They don't have... Oh, <coughs> I ever saw any of the uh, Vatican yeah. stuff, the Pope's carrying a staff, and he has an image. So Catholicism has images, physical, real. They're, they're stained glass windows will always have images, images and the other ones, they're not, not there. Right, they have biblical images, but not Yeshua. So it's an interesting question, because you, know, you have many... Um, Many questions that should come out. Can I pray in a place where there is no image, but it's a what's the right word? It's a um, it's non-denominational. Can I pray in a place that's non-denominational with no images? But Protestants has a cross an image without what it doesn't even have a cross. Protestants don't believe in the alone. God don't even have a cross. No, no, they do. This this non-denominational room. I haven't been there two weeks ago, three weeks ago, in yeah. an airport, and I wanted to pray. So I said, you know, I want to pray. Yeah, it's just a chapel. Right? So it's a chapel, right. So it doesn't could, have any has nothing. Then you don't have a question. So the question as would be, so, suppose it does have some. So now, no, if it has anything you can't pray, they're agreed. All that it really has is kind of like a, um, like an altar, sort of like a table covered, etc. But that's not representative of anything. So I prayed there, it was fine. Just a room. But it was, no, it wasn't just a room. It's a, it's a prayer room. It's not any room. It's a... What... What distinguishes it from another room? What's in there besides the altar? Um, the lectern. They have other services. Which we have. Yeah, correct. So I did. I, th- I thought there was nothing wrong with it. I did read the teshuvah subsequently. Says you cannot use it, but it wasn't clear in that teshuvah why you cannot use it. We know they said there's no image of that stuff because others do pray there. So that was an, an interesting issue to be further explored. But while I'm saying my prayer, a Muslim comes in, puts out his rug and starts praying five feet from me. I'm just pointing out <laughs> that that's what happened. It was very awkward and very odd and very uh, very strange and very interesting. You know, I don't know if he's a did suicide bomber or not. Did he push you? Sorry? Did he push you? No, he did not push me. He just sat five feet away from me. So I'm saying, Man, ha- Sorry? Think about it. I was going to tell him, Allah Akbar. I was going to say, I, wanted, I did want to connect. I had a need to say, we're really in this together. But I didn't. I mean, because he prayed longer than I did, I guess. He just... All right, that's true. But I mean, he was a guy who just walks in, puts the thing, and bows down, down, and then his pants. Is, is so I said, okay, let me just finish and leave. And so I did, because I wasn't really quite sure. But it was raised that that particular because what I read subsequently seemed to indicate one could not pray in that room, although it wasn't clear as to why and what what they were dealing with in that teshuvah. 
But certainly if there's an image, we cannot do so. Certainly if there's a cross, we cannot do so. And that was one of the issues that Obama had in... Obama and Rabbi Lukstein had when Obama invited the denominations, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, as well as folks that are in orthodoxy, to have a service upon his inauguration four years ago. And the RCA refused to send anybody there. The RCA, the Council of America, refused. But Lukstein said, I'm going. Because certain form, they went. He said, I'm going because it's Kiddush Hashem to go. And then he was condemned by the RCA, which uh, I was very upset about because there's no point in making do an issue. You want to go, you go. Why should you go? Why should I condemn you? He didn't go as a member of the RCA. He was the president of the RCA, but he didn't go as an RCA. But they're saying he's identified with the RCA. So once you go, you are implicating us, the RCA. So therefore we have to condemn it. That was their reasoning. So you're not going independently. I am going independently. Yeah, but you can't escape who you are. You are one of the most prominent rabbis in New York City. KJ is one of the most prominent synagogues. And therefore, you go... Did they condemn the act or condemn the person? Um, it kind of came out the same thing. It kind of came out the same thing. We condemned that he's going, etc., etc. And that he's going was not really the act, but that he should not be part of this. And it was a very, very sad... Look, man, 80 years old, worked for these people for... 50, 60 years does not need to be condemned by the RCA, which is his organization. I mean, he's founded, he was involved in all that. And they said no, so it was just inappropriate, it was ugly. It was, I think, just the wrong move. Ignore it. You ignore it, you ignore it, fine. Okay, so here, <clears throat> can you pray in that room or not? He says, halakhli, yes. And he had Poskin that said yes. He asked the Poskin, can I pray in this room? Yes. And he said, it was Kedush Hashem, and he said, I had 30 seconds with Obama. I shook his hand, I said, I said, Luxin says, I said to him, I appreciate your stance on Israel at that point in time, going back four years ago. He made a speech in praise of Israel, where this, 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 before he made the Cairo speech. He made another speech that was very positive. Israel. Cairo speech was very negative about Israel. So, he said, I appreciate your words. He says, I, Luxin says, we don't know if that's ever going to impact upon Obama that this rabbi said, I appreciate your words about Israel. Who knows? So, here you have, in section 4, 51, verse 4, 2, Positive, three negative. Look at the positive one, which is the positive would be thirty. You have a positive obligation, which is lamed. You have to do away. You have to destroy. You have to obliterate all idolatry, etc. So, is Christian idolatry not is a good question? Many, and then you have number ten to burn a city, dahat that is given over to idolatry. You have to burn the entire city. Famous halakha in the book of Yavarim. Although, that's one of the two halakha that the rabbis say, never happened. Cannot happen. If you have one mezuzah in the city, it cannot be in Yedachat. For one mezuzah, entire city. But the Torah is explicit about doing it, but the rabbis kind of pushed it to the back burner. Never happens. Those are two. The rest are all, are all negative. This goes against what you said before, that we allow pagans out. The question is where? No, this Yedachat is within the confines of Israel. Oh. It's a Jewish city in, in Eretz Israel that went the way of Avadazara. So it's not outside. But also that might have changed Talmudically as opposed to Biblically. So let's look at Alyssa 13 now. Is this talking about when we, like when, is this talking about when we're in exile in Israel? No, when the land is ours. No. no. Right here, like, like, it, it sounds like it's saying if we're in exile, the land's not really ours. No, no, nothing to exile. This is laws that apply... Today? Like right now? To land, land to, to the land. To the land. To the land. Gotcha. So that's the interesting question. It's a horrible question because what are the obligations 
of the state of Israel religiously, let's say, look at the religious part of the state of Israel, near religion, there's no separation of church and state in Israel. They're all together. So what are their obligations in terms of Islam? So it's Christianity. We respect and protect other shrines of other religions. We do. And we should. But it's a very powerful halakhic question. When Islam controlled that area, they did not do so. It's interesting how it's such a double-edged moral sword. They didn't respect ours, but we should respect theirs. And many would argue, say, no, let's blow up the mosque of Omar, and let's blow up the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and just finish with it. That's Maya Kahana's position and approach to these issues. We wouldn't agree, especially because you don't want 1.2 billion Muslims angry at you. That's number one. Politically, pragmatically, important to be aware of that. And again, if one Jewish life is lost because some crazy Muslim decides to kill you because you, somebody else 5,000 miles away blew up his mosque, that's a serious issue. So you don't want to put Jewish lives at risk and gain that political and religious strategic advantage. You don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But besides the political situation, let's say in an ideal world, what should be our approach in Israel to this? Well, <clears throat> is Islam with Azadah? We all across the board agree that it's not. Yes, there's one, Rishon, one particular person who argues that Rambam said it was, but we don't hold that it is. Rambam, everybody else agrees, it's not idolatry, it's an image of God, it's Allahu Akbar, God is great, Muhammad is his messenger, it's all you've got to say, it's all you've got to say, it's not you can even feign Islam if you have to. That's the Rambam, we all agree. How about the, uh, the fundamentalists? When they take it too far, does that make it... Uh only in a political, social sense, not in a theological sense. They make it into idolatry, but it's only political, social, it's not theological. They still believe in an image of God. They just believe that he commanded me to blow up a restaurant and kill innocent people. So they, why do they believe that? Because that's what they want to do. So they've taken their political agenda and attributed it to God. That's a feature or a function of idolatry. That's when you project onto your God your values. When you say, Hitler is my God, it's another way of saying that I'm projecting onto Hitler what I want to do. So that's modern idolatry. Projection of your values and absolutizing it, making it infinitely important to you to do what that idol says. So Hitler becomes my idol, and I will do whatever he says in that particular context, in that way. But another way would be, is that if I were to set up an image... It doesn't speak, it doesn't talk, it doesn't act. And ask the idol, what do you want me to do? And the idol responds, in my mind, I hear the voice of the idol. What is the idol saying to me in my mind? Blow up the restaurant, kill people so that you can ultimately drive the Jewish people out of the state of Israel. So that is idolatrous in the sense that you are projecting, absolutizing your value, your desire onto the idol, which you think is saying it to you. So to that extent, it's idolatry. But not theologically. You see? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so that's here. But, but how about the, uh, the uh, 72 virgin image? Things you that, you uh, like that image? You're into nah, that? Nah, I'm saying for them. Is that, What's wrong is with that, it? Is that, is that, is that, I don't know. Well, we have to know what that... Is that a midrash? I don't, know, I don't know what they mean by that. It's not in the Quran. I think it's not in the Quran. I don't believe it's in the Quran. It has a motivational method. Yeah, that's for sure. But is it is that belief idolatrous? I don't see why it's idolatrous. Idolatry has to do with the, the being of God. So now we come to Christianity. Here you have major machloket. We all agree Protestantism is not idolatry. There's no image. It's Catholicism. Ram says it is. 
Most early streams say it is. It's physical, it's an image, it's idolatry. Tosafot, who lived within the Christian community, says it's not. Why not? He says they don't believe really in Yeshu as a deity, rather he's part of God. So they say that the three is one. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those three is really one. So they believe in Shutafut. Excuse me. Have all these concepts that Tosafot, the Shonim, equal status to the Rambam, says that Catholicism, this is pre Protestant. Protestant Revolution is, is in 1519, when Luther banged on the church in Germany his 19 theses, whatever it was. So that's the 16th century. But 300 years earlier, earlier, Tosafot, who's the famous Tosafot equal part to the Rambam, they say that it's shutafut, it's partnership, and not idolatry. So that changes everything, because you could do business with, like, with these people, etc. There's all kinds of issues. I mean, Tom has all kinds of issues that, you know, that wine issues, all kinds of stuff that have to be understood in this context. One more minute, one more minute. Okay, so good. So here we have one. So do, are any of the 13 that you have on one page of these 13? So the third that we're talking about, Shiluta Agashmiyut. So you might want to say that denial of God's physicality, which is the third principle in the book of commentary of the Rambam on the Mishnah Sanhedrin, in that book, the third one is to deny God's physicality. We have to believe that God is oneness. He is not a physical body. There's no power in any physical body. You can say God is infinitely powerful, but He's a body. You can't say God is a body. And you can't say that physical occurrences take place to this body. God does not move, no tenu'ah, no no rest. All of that does not take place in God. So therefore he says that God is not composite, God does not stand, God does not sit, God is not a front, God is not a, a back. None of that applies to God itself. There's no God is not a, a body and not a power in a body. That's the third one. The fourth one is eternity of God. So now... Which one do you use that? That's my question. Right. Which one, third or fourth are you talking about? Eternity of God? No. And no goof. Right. So that's not over here. No, not here. Right. So that... Seeing God physically does not seem to be here as well. Do not build it. Look at all... Just quickly glance at all these... All these uh, negative commandments. Don't, and it's very interesting because... Again, I want to remind you that the Rambam has a book called Sivra Mitzvot the book of commandments which gives you all of these commandments in paragraphic form you have all that we just covered you know just uh, on all these pages the book of what has a, each one of these listed and it's very short concise four or five lines each one that it defines all this so it's a very nice two set volume set that Chevelle had translated that Chevelle had wrote a critical edition to it's really very nice it's a nice book so that if you want a quick definition any you're not going to go through all the Mishnah Torah with all the details so that in the book of the commandments which Ram wrote as an introduction to the Mishnah Torah here's your all your 613 commandments here's five lines to define and explain each one of the commandments so if you want to know all the 51 are going to be found in that book here we have it in five lines Right, five words. Sorry, five words. In that book, it's in five lines. So it's good and appropriate to to be aware I of these books. There's that that Tyag Mitzvot uh, volume. Which one? Thing? It's, uh, the Legacy Foundation. No, it's a completely different issue. No, I'm saying that that's very comprehensive. That's 15 volumes. So I, mean, I have a lot of volumes out. 
Yes, no, the answer is that's a compilation starting with the Rambam, but everybody yeah, else they, as they, well. They, they throw everything in there. They throw it's, everything it's, in there. It's, yes, it's huge. It's, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. I think I have the first two. Charlie Saka brought me the first two as a gift. But it's huge, and again, I don't know how critical and how academic it is. It's written very nice. Nicely, yeah. it's an advert. It's written nicely. Nicely, I mean, it's, it's understandable. NYU, you can't fool around. Oh, I'm sorry. Please. You know, anyway, speaking inappropriate English. Okay, right. So it's written very nicely. degree away. <laughs> I will call, yes. Where did you get a degree in? Is it business? Or in you a business guy? Yes, yes okay. okay, good. Okay, so here's all your. So, and you have to. So interesting just to read these. You can't get any benefit from Ardazara. Number 12, 13. You can't motivate somebody to do Ardazara. It's called Mesitu Medea. Somebody that encourages Ardazara. So if I sell. If I sell a cross again, am I allowed to or not? Ram would probably say no. Shadaruch in the 16th century allows it, if I remember correctly. He allowed you to sell these religious items. Rama might say no, because you really are encouraging more of this Catholicism, which for the Rambam is paganism. So if we say no, you can. That what? You think you're encouraging? So if you didn't sell it, he wouldn't have that incentive to get us Okay. Well, I mean, the, 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 the same what, cheeseburgers, right? You can't sell. That's a problem as well. No, it's not idolatrous to eat a cheeseburger. Well, meat and milk together is not. I, I, I said that is not idolatrous. I mean, that, in the Rambam's formulation, at least. Well, well didn't the Rambam say that 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 cooking a kid in his mother's milk? Was, yeah, the Rambam say that. Is that, 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 is yes. that why we can't have milk and meat together? Well, so, that's Tam Hamitzvah, but yes, it's not viewed idolatrously. Well, you can, but he could. He could, right? He could, right? So, um, it's an interesting question. We have to go through all the halachot, the Rambam, and beyond to figure out exactly what is the Isur. And it's important. Again, we don't do this. Nobody studies these, but one should be familiar with these issues to make sure that we don't fall into the trap. So, again, when he says, not to cut somebody, if I sell it, I can't sell milk and meat together. I can't get any benefit from it. I can't eat it. I can't cook it. Right. So, that's, that's a different category. You can't get any benefit from it, number 12. You can't love the person who encourages. Can you preach? If you're a preacher of this, you cannot do so. Do not save him if he's dying. A pagan. It's a pagan person who believes. It's tough stuff. This is. Do not say anything about choice about it. And again, once you look at all the halachot involved over here, do not refrain from proclaiming him guilty if you can. Do not prophesy in the name of idolatry. So the Rambam is heavy on the idolatrous issues. Why? Because the Rambam was such a radical monotheist. Does he contradict himself elsewhere? No, why? What do you mean? A pagan still Salem Elohim? How could you let him die? That's an interesting question. I don't know if we say that it's Salem Elohim. It's a question. Are we going to book it? And also, do you want me to say... God's children? Wait, hold on a second. What did God say when the Egyptians were uh, drowned? Okay, but they were pagans. Good. So the question we have is Rambam explained that in that context. Okay, I buy that. That's number one. But I also want to analyze a bit more, a bit further, the question of whether or not, in the Rambam's eyes, a pagan would have Salem Elohim. You have to say yes necessarily. I'm not so sure the Rambam, I don't sure the Rambam would say that. What's the Rambam use paganism? Well, we don't look at it that way, but it's still an interesting question. You've chosen paganism 
as a way of life, or you're born into it. No, really, it's the Rechol Melachim issue where the Rambam says. Sorry? Can you negate it? Yeah, that's one of the questions that we raise. But more significantly, is the Rechol Melachim, the Rambam has in what, seventh chapter. Here he says to us, seventh or eighth chapter, one second. Um, we tell us to be compassionate to them. Chapter 10. He says <coughs> he feels that of course with a person who's Ger Toshav, non pagan, no high person. That's one category. People that are Ger Toshav, that's not a pagan. They've given up paganism, they keep the seven Ochai commandments. You have to be kind and gentle, hesed with that person, as you would any Israelite. That's one point. We are commanded to give them life. All these geret toshav. Good. And now what the rabbi said, do not give shalom to the akum, to the pagan. It's not referring to geret toshav. Right? Geret toshav be nice to, good to. Now the says, even that pagan, that the rabbis, rabbis commanded us to visit their sick, bury their dead with the dead of Israel and to give them charity to give sustenance to their poor people in the same way you give to the Israelites because of that because you want to have a harmonious relationship with them as the Pasuk says so you're right the Rambam is quoting this Pasuk God is good to all and also this and the Ram quotes it and elaborates and expands it so has the Rambam put together this halacha which is completely totally open and liberal one might say to the pagan even and these very intense halachot you don't know I think you're right I think it's a very good question How, what's the Rambam's view of idolatry so we're going to look into that it's going to be difference between living among, amongst you and no, because they're living amongst us. Be very nice to them. Oh, say here it's not living amongst. Therefore, root it out. But it's a different temper. It's a different mindset. It's a different framework. So I'm not sure. We have to look at this more Which profoundly. First? Sorry. Which did you write first? This. So I think maybe the same word. But it's ten years work. difference. But, I, but I, we don't we don't historicize the Rambam because Rambam reviewed his works, went over his works, did all that. So it's a very different. Um, did he publish this? Like, did he make this? Like, did he take this work, write it, and then publish after it. he wrote his other work, publish it? Not other work. Or this was work. Was it, it, it published beforehand? Maybe, maybe you want to repeal this or take this back. I don't think so. The Rambam reviewed his works, Constantly. and also there are many questions halachot over here, but many answered them. His son answered them, so he had to take this as it is. The question is finding the time to do more research on it because I think your points are very well taken, and we have to. And there are works that do deal with this, but you have to find the time between now and next week. We'll try to look it up, but we'll see. Okay, so here we don't find any of the thirteen in this section, the fourth section. So you're going to have the challenge next week of finding in the fifth and last section of the book of knowledge, which has with teshuvah, meaning if you do all any of these transgressions. The worst you can imagine, you can still do teshuvah. That's the conceptual framework. No matter what you did that was wrong, idolatry, the worst thing you can do, you still get the teshuvah for that. That's the fifth section, the teshuvah. And we're going to have the challenge of finding in this whole teshuvah, we're in, you only have one mitzvah. You have ten chapters, one mitzvah, which is to do teshuvah. 
confess your transgressions. But in the text of this entire ten chapters, we have to find ten, eleven of these ikarim, and then see a correspondence between the book of the book of commentary to the book of Shetura. We good? Thank you. Pull these together. Thank you. So we don't uh, use again. Good to see you. Good to see you. Okay. You too. Thank you. We're good. You too. Thanks. Okay.